Hey, well, good morning. Hey, I got great news. Punksy Phil did not see his shadow, which means spring is coming early. I, and most days it's kind of felt like spring all the time, I guess, right? But um, I, I'm, I'm not, those of you who are outdoors, winter sports people are probably upset, but I'm not. Um, so I was just curious, uh, how many of you guys are going to watch the, the game later today? Yeah, yeah. I'm talking about the puppy bowl. Um, or the kitty bowl. Oh, you're talking about Super No, the Super Bowl, right? Super Bowl night. Any Chiefs fans? Any Chiefs fans? Okay. A few of you. 49ers fans? And how many of you had no idea who was playing until I just said those teams? A lot of you, yeah. That's gonna be fun. Good some good commercials. Halftime show, right? J Lo. Um, no, it is it is my pleasure, like JT said, to kick off a new series that we're calling Jesus is Enough. And over the next four weeks, we're going to be taking a look at the book of Colossians in the New Testament. And, and you'll notice that in our sermon series that we choose to do, that every once in a while, we'll, we'll do a, a, a more topical or a thematic series, kind of like the one we just came off of with this, the Disconnected series that we just did last month or so. But more often than that, we typically will choose a, a whole book of the Bible to go through or a chunk of Scripture to go through, um, because we really want to be a very Bible literate church, that we really value that. And we want you all to grow an understanding of the Bible and how things flow through the Bible. And so that in your own study of the Bible on your own, when you're reading it on your own time, that, that you are growing in spiritual maturity in that as well. So, so typically that's kind of what we do. And, and so I'm really excited to look at Colossians over the next couple of weeks with you guys. And um. Um, and see what God kind of unpacks in that. But let me just say a quick word of prayer, and then uh, we'll kind of jump into it. So Heavenly Father, just um, thank you for this particular book of Colossians. I pray then that today and over the next couple weeks, that this book would come alive to us, that it would speak to each and every person here today, and, and for those who, are, who will be listening online. And I just pray that you put power on my words today, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, just to kind of intro and tell you a little bit about the book of Colossians here. You may or may not be familiar with this, but the book of Colossians is actually a letter. It's a letter written by the, the Apostle Paul, who wrote many of the letters in the New Testament. And this particular book was written to a small young church in the town of Colossae in the first century. And Historians think that Colossae at one time was probably a pretty populous, wealthy city um, found on the Lycus River in modern-day Turkey. If you want to go and throw that map up there, it's kind of a zoom-in up at the top so you can see in a little bit, but it's kind of in the northern part of the Mediterranean Sea, uh, a little bit away from uh, Israel. But uh, it's also about, if you can tell, I don't know if you can kind of see it up there, to the west of Colossae, about 100, 125 miles is a town called Ephesus. Ephesus is another book of the Bible, Ephesians, that Paul, Paul spent about two years working in Ephesus, making tents and telling people about Jesus. And Ephesus was a major trade city that along the waterways there, along the rivers, that people from Colossae would bring goods from there to Ephesus to trade with lots of people and for business. And uh, it's believed that while Paul was probably in Ephesus, that maybe a number of people traveling from Colossae on business probably came, heard the message of Jesus, found out about him, and then took that back to their town. 
Um, a couple of the people, one of the guys we're going to read about today, Epaphras, was one of those men. Um, and the other was probably Philemon. Philemon, another book of the Bible that Paul wrote a letter to. Um, and it's likely that these two men came to Ephesus on business, somehow heard about that message, and then took it back to start this church. Now, there's, there's no actual record of Paul himself actually going and visiting Colossae. In fact, most historians think he probably didn't. That's kind of why this letter is a, maybe a little bit less personal than some of his other letters. Uh, in fact, N.T. Wright, the highly acclaimed biblical scholar, he thinks that Paul may have actually spent some time in prison in Ephesus. And that during that time, he may have even been in prison with Epaphras. And that's when he wrote this letter uh, to this young church of maybe 10, 20 Christians who are meeting in Philemon's house. And, and just another, another thing, before we dive into actually talking and looking at it a little bit in detail, any time that you're reading a letter in the New Testament, I would encourage you to do two things. Two things. And this is just to help you grow and, and being better to understand it. But, and the first thing is, is I would encourage you, if possible, to read the whole letter in one sitting. To sit down sometime this week and read Colossians from beginning to end. It's, it's just four chapters. It's not super long. Some of the letters are a lot longer, and that can be more difficult. But, but when we do that, we, we get the big picture idea. We don't, we don't get lost in all the details and get to the end and think, I don't know what I read. We understand kind of the themes of a letter because usually a letter has kind of one main point, one main point that is trying to drive home. You know, if my wife wrote me a love letter, right, and I opened it up or I, I, and I started to read it and it said, hey, babylicious, because <laughs> that's what she calls me in fictitious letters of mine. She would never call me that. But, you know, let me tell you all the ways and things I love about you. You know, I wouldn't read that first line and then stop and look at her and say, I cannot wait to read the rest of this tomorrow. Thank you so much. And I actually, I'll, actually, I'll probably just lead, read one line tomorrow and then I'll read the next line the next day. And by about a month from now, I'll get through the whole letter. Right? No, I wouldn't do that, right? I would read the whole thing from beginning to end. And yet with the Bible, that's kind of what we tend to do a lot. And there's nothing wrong with going deep and really thinking about a verse here or there. But we, sometimes we lose the bigger picture when we don't understand the, the work as a whole. So I'd encourage you sometime this week to read or listen to it in audio, the whole book of Colossians. The second thing I would say is that we often forget when we read letters in the Bible that they were written thousands of years ago and not specifically with you or me in mind. That Paul was not writing this letter thinking, I cannot wait till the people of VCDC read this 2,000 years later, right? He had no concept of us reading this letter. And so when we, when we go into the letter and we think, this is confusing, and what's he talking about? It's because we don't have any context for the letter. We don't, we, don't, we don't understand what was going on in the culture and the time back then. So oftentimes in your Bible, there'll be like a page at the beginning of the letter before it actually starts, gives you some background information. I would encourage you to read those. Learn a little bit about what was going on. It'll help make the letter make sense. And for those of you who are more like want to get more into that, there's a book called How to Read the Bible Book by Book. It's by a guy, guy named Gordon Fee. Excellent. It'd be an excellent book in any Christian's library. It just gives a little bit of background information, but not too much that's overwhelming. But, but just to fill you in, so what is actually happening in Colossae in the first century in what what Paul is talking about in this letter. Well, well, most scholars agree that the, probably the major problem 
that was happening in that time, and this was happening in other churches in the area and region as well, is that there were other religious voices encroaching and putting pressure on the early Christians. That the whole region of this world at the time was a melting pot of religions. You know, at all the Roman gods and goddesses that were worshipped. In Colossae, there was also some, apparently some sort of angel cult where some people were worshiping the, the archangel, arch, archangel Michael, thinking that he formed some spring to, of water to come up. But the two main voices that most historians agree that were talking in this area, were kind of playing tug of war with the Colossians, were the Judaizers and the Gnostics. And we're going to talk about these groups a little bit more in detail throughout this whole book because they'll keep coming back up. But I want to just tell you a little bit about them to start because it'll help make sense of, of what we're going to talk about today. The Judaizers were a group of Jewish believers who were cool with Jesus. They believed Jesus was the Messiah. But they also believed that it was essential, absolutely essential, that anybody who put their faith in Jesus has to now become Jewish and follow all the Jewish sacrifices and rituals and offerings and traditions and festivals and that kind of a thing. So you have this brand new group of non-Jewish Colossian Christians who didn't grow up in a Christian, and didn't grow up in a Jewish culture, who don't really know a lot about it, all of a sudden being told that Jesus is not enough, that he's not enough, that you have to, to, to basically um, do more than that, that Jesus is like a step on the stairway to heaven. Okay, on this path to God. Go ahead and throw that slide up. Yeah. So there, yeah, the, the cross has got a little swag today, you know. It's a little, but um, that Jesus is, is like the bottom step. But you have to do all these other things. Sacrifices, circumcision, festivals, all those other things to get to God. This is what the Judaizers thought. And then this other group, the Gnostics. They had some interesting enticing views about how to get to God. You can go ahead and throw the next one up. The Gnostics... They believed Jesus was, was good too. That's great. But they believed Jesus was basically like a lesser God. And that you had to do all these other practices. And some of them were kind of a little bit odd. Or like physically abusing your body. And you had know, to learn some secret codes or secret knowledge. And they studied the stars and, and different things like that to get to God. So in this cultural context that Paul is writing this letter to the Colossians, he is extremely concerned that this new church... Of, of Christians is going to be lured and pulled away from the foundational truth that Jesus is enough. That, and before Paul goes into specifics of what it's like to live like Jesus is enough, he wants to make the case in chapter one that Jesus is supreme, that he's supreme over everything, over all these other different religious practices and customs and ideas. So let's jump into the beginning of the letter. So if you have a Bible, you want to open up to Colossians 1. Um, if you have a phone app and you want to go to that, we have also Bibles on this stage and back at the sound booth. If you don't have one, you're welcome to grab one. Keep it, take it home with you. But we're going to start off chapter 1, verse 1. So it says this. We'll have the verses up on the screens too. You can follow along up there. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, Grace and peace to you from God our Father. Now let's pause right there for a second. So in first century letters, it was common practice to actually put yourself, the author's name, at the beginning of the letter to identify who was sending the letter. 
before putting who you're writing to. And, and that makes a lot more sense than putting it at the end and you got to look at the back and who, who's this letter from? But what do I know? Uh, so Paul identifies himself and his friend Timothy and he says he's writing to these Colossian Christians and he, he talks about them as being God's holy people. God's holy people. And here, so Paul starts off here reminding them of this truth that in God's eyes, they're already holy. That they don't have to do anything more or adopt any new practices to become holier. That they're already holy enough in God's eyes. Verse 3, he goes on. He says this. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all of God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard is the true message of the gospel that has come to you. So the next step of any ancient letter and traditional letter in the first century was after identifying yourself and saying who you're writing to is to give thanks, to be thankful, to explain how thankful you are. And Paul here is very thankful to them. You notice that he commends them for their faith in Jesus and their love for all of God's people. And and apparently the news has traveled. The news has traveled 100, 125 miles to Paul in Ephesus that the people in Colossae are known as this great people of faith. And Paul is encouraged by it. And then in verse 5, he reminds them that they have already heard the true message of the gospel. It, they don't just have a partial gospel or a gospel that needs added on to like these other groups would have them do, say. And then halfway through verse 6, he continues to encourage them by letting them know that they're not alone. They're not alone in believing the true gospel, that the true gospel of Jesus is spreading around the world. And so he says this in verse, then second part of verse 6. And in the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and who also told us of your love in the spirit. Here that we meet Epaphras that I mentioned earlier. And then verse nine. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. Man, that'd be great to have Paul praying for you all the time. That'd be great. Uh, we continually ask God to fill you with knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have a great in endurance and, and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you, he's qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the, light, in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Now that was a big long section, I know. That was a lot to take in. And there's, Paul is really encouraging them and making lots of encouraging points. He talks about how it fills him with joy and thanks for them. And he's excited about what God's doing in them and through them and about this amazing inheritance they have in being part of God's kingdom. And I wish there was, we had more time to go into this in, in greater detail, but the next section is what I want to really camp on and, and spend some time on. Because while I think few people today would probably call themselves a Gnostic, and, and you know, and I'd, I would say I don't, 
you know, or a few people would probably call themselves a Judaizer. Uh, we do live in a time not so different than that, where the true message of the gospel has kind of been confused. And a, and a lot of people have different views and ideas about that, about what the true gospel looks like. In 2016, uh, Oxford Dictionary picks a word of the year every year. And in 2016, the word of the year was post-truth. Post-truth. And it apparently went up by 2,000% increase in usage in that year, especially during the presidential debates. I wonder if that'll go up again this year uh, as that happens. But we live in a post-truth era where we have a high tolerance of dishonest and inaccurate information. Even blatant lies and fake news have become somewhat routine. And there are lots of voices saying, this is the truth, or believe in this, or believe in that. And that carries over into spiritual discussions as well. You know, you could, we hear things like, you can believe whatever you want, right, about God. That in the end, it doesn't really matter. We hear things like, well, if God loves all people, then wouldn't all paths lead to God? Or Christianity and Jesus, that's fine, but, but isn't Muslim and Buddhism and Hinduism and, you know, Judaism and Taoism and Taoism and Shintoism and, you know, all the other isms, is, isn't it that fine too, as long as you believe in something? You know, we hear conversations like this. We know, and we, because we live in this post-truth culture, we can learn a lot from what God says through Paul in this letter to the Colossians about how the true message of the gospel is that Jesus is enough. That Jesus is enough. And that Jesus is supreme and greater than any other religious practice or, or idea out there that we don't have to add anything on, that we don't have to just practice some sort of hybrid religion. Just Let's just do a little bit of all of them just to make sure we're covered, right? Just so we get to heaven, we're good. We've, we've done everything, right? In the late 1800s in Chicago, there was this big, huge world event that took place. It was called the World's Columbian Exposition. 21 million people from around the world came to Chicago to participate in this event. And one of the particular things in this event was something called the World Parliament of Religions. The World Parliament of Religions. And the idea was that representatives from all these different world religions would come and they would bring their best ideas and their best arguments and they would share them and debate them. And then together, this group of people would create this superior hybrid religion that was better than any other religion that had been created so far. And there was a man named D.L. Moody. He was a great evangelist, American evangelist at the time. And many people um, really challenged him to not only not participate in that, but they actually wanted him to like confront it, speak out against it, talk about how bad it is. And D.L. Moody had a different idea. His idea was what, what if we told people just the truth? The truth that Jesus is so amazing and so superior and so wonderful and then let them make their own choice. So he gathered up all these other evangelists and they basically rented out every church or theater in Chicago they could get their hands on because all these people were coming into town and they shared the, the good news about Jesus. And in the end, 
people came to these, he called them preaching posts. People came to these preaching posts. They heard the good news about Jesus. And in the end, it was one of the greatest American evangelistic movements our country has ever seen. Thousands of people came to know Jesus from all over the world. They took what they learned. They went back to their own countries and shared that with other people. It was a huge success. And no, the, all the work that the World Parliament of Religions did to try to come up with this hybrid religion, no other religion really ever stuck. Nothing really ever came of that. Now Paul, Paul in this letter is doing a very similar thing. He's clarifying, hey, here's what's important. You, what's important is that we know who Jesus is and that Jesus is enough. He's very strategic in making a clear intellectual case to answer the question, who is Jesus? And I think Paul would argue that the answer to that particular question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you and to you and to you? That, that the answer to that question is probably the most critical question you will ever have to answer in your whole life or the next in this life or the next. That that's, that'll be the most critical question because the true answer to this question means everything. It means everything. That in a post-truth culture, that if you walked around and asked people on the street, well, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? You'd probably get as many different answers as you asked the number of people. But Paul would say, Paul would say that if, if Jesus is just one option, or just one path to God, or just maybe a, one step on the staircase to God, uh, Paul would say that that person has misunderstood the true message of gospel and does not understand the supremacy of who Jesus is. So what is Paul's case? What is Paul's case? Well, we see here that Paul makes the case that Jesus is supreme over everything. And he starts with this. He starts in verse 15 with this idea that Jesus is the supreme image of God. Verse 15, it says this. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The Son, referring to Jesus, is the invisible God made visible. In 1 Timothy and in Hebrews, it tells us that God is invisible but in John 1.18, it says this, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, Jesus, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father and has made him known that in Jesus, God has made himself visibly known to us. Do you remember back in like the 90s, I feel like it, maybe this is just my memory, but I feel like in the 90s, a lot of movies, it seemed like there'd be a good guy and a bad guy and there'd be some chase scene at the end. And it always seemed like they'd end, somehow they ended up in like abandoned amusement parks or something like that. And they'd end up in a hall of mirrors. You know what I'm talking about? Where there's a room of all these mirrors. And, and you could never like tell which one was the real bad guy. You'd think it was him. And then, oh, it was just a reflection, Right? And then the next one, oh, that's him. Oh, nope, that was just a reflection. And then when you let your guard down and you think it's just a reflection, all of a sudden it's the real person, right? Jumps out. I don't know, maybe I just watched a lot of B-rated movies or something like that in the 90s. But I just, I feel like that was a common thing. Um, but, but as we see in Colossians 1.15, if you put that verse back up, Jesus isn't just the perfect reflection of God in a hall of mirrors. He's God himself. He's God in the flesh. 
the invisible God made visible walking around the earth for everyone to see over 2,000 years ago. You know, the Greek word icon, translated image in this, and in verse 15, it means more than just a reflection, more than just a photograph or a painting of something. It goes beyond that. It means the actual person or thing. It implies the actual person or thing. Jesus is not just the first step or one of many possible steps to see God. He is God. He is the first and the last step. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And if you want to see and know God, Paul makes the argument that you don't need to look any further than Jesus. In the next verse, next verse, Paul goes on and he makes the case that not only is Jesus the supreme image of God, he's also the supreme creator. He's the supreme creator. Verse 16, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. If Jesus is the supreme creator and all things were created through him and for him, that means that he wasn't only present at creation, it means that he was doing the creating. There's 800,000 known insects in the world that we know of. Jesus made all of them. Not only that, it means that he made you and me. That he created you and me. And that he knows you and me inside and out better than we know ourselves. And this, this was a huge dig at the Gnostics and their thinking. Because the Gnostics, they did not value the created world, the physical world. They actually thought the phys- everything physical was bad. Spiritual stuff was good. And so, so it, this would have been a huge dig at them. Because Paul is saying Jesus values both the spiritual and the physical. That he, he values the heavens and the earth the invisible and the visible. He values both of them because he made them both. And Jesus isn't the first step to the creator. He is the creator and he looks at you and he looks at me and he doesn't just say, hey, he or she is good. It says in Genesis, it says he he or she is very good. He looks at you and I and we bring him joy. Sometimes we think, well, yeah, but but I'm so messed up. I've done so many bad things. I'm so flawed. But he still looks at you and I and he still says, yeah, but I still think that you're pretty good. I still love you. I still love you right as you are right now. That's really good news for us to hear today. Jesus goes on, or Paul goes on, and he he says not only is it supreme in those things, but he's also our supreme sustainer. He's our supreme sustainer. Verse 17, he is before all things and he, hold all, he holds all things together. In him, all things hold together. He sustains everything. The verb here uh, for holding all things together is in perfect tense. It means that Jesus didn't just do it in the past. It means that he's continually holding all things together. And that he will continue to hold all things together forever. And without Jesus constantly doing this, everything would fall apart. To give an example of how we see this in in today, it's like everything that science has figured out, and I'm a huge science nerd, but everything that we've figured out in science, you know, like as physicists, when they study an atom, 
and they study how it works, and they see how the electrons are attracted to the protons, and how different atoms can join with other atoms and form molecules and compounds that make us up all the matter in the whole universe. We can study those and learn relationships, but at the end of the day, nobody can still understand why it all happens in the first place. Why? Why is all matter joined together? Why? Well, the Bible would say it's because Jesus holds it all together. That he created it that way, that he's sustaining it that way. That Jesus is our supreme sustainer. And I, I don't know about you, but I know in my own life, I often forget this and misbelieve that I am the one who has to hold it all together. I, like, if I just save enough and plan in advance enough and eat healthy enough and exercise enough and do all this stuff enough, then I'll somehow be the first person in history ever to hold it all together. <laughs> And in fact, there's only one person who's ever done that and will ever do that, and that's Jesus. And not only that, he longs and wants to hold us all together and be our supreme sustainer as well. You know, no job is secure enough. You know, no retirement account large enough. No one's health strong enough. I talked to two guys in the last week or two in this church who who were are avid, healthy eaters, avid exercisers, and they both have had major heart issues where they had to have, have stints put in. And, and the doctor said, it's just, it's, not, it's just genetics, unfortunately. There's only so much you can do. They, they're trying to hold, they're trying to do a good job of caring for their bodies and do the best they can, and yet on, in and of themselves, they can't do it. We can't do it. All, we need Jesus to sustain us. You know, we, we often try to think like if we just keep going and keep doing it, we can keep it all together. But we all, I think we all know that it's just one unfortunate incident or misunderstanding or tragedy that would cause a, just a tiny breeze to blow the whole house of cards down that we've built up in our life. And in fact, I know for many of us, and it's often in those falling apart moments in life that so many of us found Jesus in the first place. That so many of us realized in those tough seasons when we were trying to hold it all together and sustain it all together on our own that we can't do it anymore and we have to say, Jesus, I need you to do it. I need you to do it. And if you're here today and things are kind of falling apart in your life, or there's an area of your life that's really struggling, the great news is that Jesus wants to and is able to sustain, sustain you during this season and to hold you together through this season. And I would encourage you in a little bit later here to come up and get prayer at the end for that. Jesus is not only the supreme image of God, the supreme creator, supreme sustainer, he's also the supreme leader. He's our supreme leader. And that sounds a little bit like the bad guy in Star Wars. Um, but... Jesus is not that kind of leader. Verse 18, it says this, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Jesus is the head. He's the leader of the body, the church, the supreme firstborn, the leader of his, his family. These, these groups of, of Judaizers and Gnostics, they believed Jesus was at the bottom of the staircase not the top. Paul would say, 
um, that he wants us to know that Jesus is the supreme leader and that we need to learn to be dependent on him and on his leadership as a, as a church, uh, not only this church, but also in our own individual lives and in our families' lives. You know, when you, you're in a tough situation or when you have a tricky decision to make and you need some wisdom, you know, what's the first thing you turn to? Is it Google, right? Is it YouTube? How do I, how do, I do this, right? Is it a wise friend or is it Jesus? Is it, is it, do you go to Jesus in prayer and ask him to show you? Do you go to the Bible and look for what does Jesus say about this in the Bible? I know to be honest and totally transparent, even as a pastor, too often, my first instinct is to go look it up on YouTube or go like ask Google or go ask somebody else. And too often it's Jesus is way towards the end when I know he should be the first person I go to. This, um, this past Monday, I bought a new sink to put in my kitchen. Uh, our old sink had these like permanent scratch marks in it and was fading and getting kind of beat up. We had, somebody had given it to us for free because they were getting rid of their sink like seven years ago. And I was like, I'll take it. And, uh, and it, was, it was okay and it worked, but it was finally like, okay, Sarah was like, okay, right, can we get a new sink? And so I bought a new sink and I got it home and I thought, okay, how do I do this? And I thought, okay, I could look it up on YouTube. I'm sure there's lots of great videos on YouTube and that would have been fine. But, but in the end, I thought, nope, I'm gonna call my dad. He's done this tons of times. So I called my dad and I said, dad, will you come over and help me put in this sink? You know, I just wanna make sure I don't mess it up. You know, what if the hole's too big, the hole's too small? So here's a picture of me and my dad, literally laying side by side underneath, putting in our new, my new sink. And, um, and what was amazing about this was the whole time we're under there, like my, I just said, dad, he, you know, you tell me what to do. You tell me what to do. And he walked in, he said, okay, go get this tool, go get that. While we were laying underneath the sink, he's literally handing me tools and saying, okay, put them on my lap. Okay, take this and reach up there and twist this and turn this and this will help tighten everything down. And I just did what he said. I just did what he said. And I'm so glad I did because it went in smooth and nice. And if I wouldn't have asked him, I think we probably, I probably would have broke the new sink. Uh, I probably would, it would probably be like crooked. The hole would have been not the right size. And we'd probably still be doing our dishes in the bathtub, you know, like. Uh, but instead it went in, it went in great. It went in great. And, and that's because I was following the leadership of my dad. You know, you know, I could have said, dad, you're coming into my house. This is my kitchen. And I want you to do, I want you to help me, but I want you to do it my way. And so often that's what we tell Jesus, right? Jesus, I want you to come into my life. I want you to fix, you know, things in me. I want you to do things for me, but I want you to do it my way. And Jesus says, that's not how it works. He says, you got to let me take the lead. You got to let me take the lead. And, and it says, you know, in the scriptures that Jesus is our supreme leader and that he knows the Father and he knows what the Father is doing and he only does what the Father is doing and he only does what the Father is saying. And, and, and he tells his church and us what to do based on that. And so if you look in your life lately, you know, and you look in your life, I'd ask you this question, is Jesus really the supreme light leader over your life? Over every part of your life, every area of your life, is he really? 
that because he wants to be and putting him in that spot is the best thing you can do. You won't regret that at all. I think it's something that maybe the Holy Spirit is inviting some of us to do today. And then finally, we see in this passage that Jesus is also the supreme reconciler. He's the supreme reconciler. It says in verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That through Jesus, he has reconciled all things on the cross, everything. All things, meaning everything in creation, all of that matter we were talking about earlier, that the Bible tells us in Romans 8.22 that, that has been groaning since sin has entered the world, that of the brokenness, that it's been groaning, that God is re- reconciling it, that Jesus has done that on the cross. And that includes you and me. That includes us. And Paul reminds the Colossians in the next verse of who they were before Jesus and now who they are after Jesus has reconciled all things. And then verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free of accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. And this is the gospel that you heard, that you have been, that has, has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is amazing news. This is great news. Paul says that because of our sinful, evil behavior, as he calls it, which that's pretty harsh, but true, that, that we were alienated and separated from God. But Jesus, as the supreme reconciler, and what he did on the, by his death on the cross, he paid the price for all of that, those sins, and that we don't have to be separated from God anymore, that we can be joined together with him, that it's a free gift, that, that we can be seen by God as holy and f- without blemish and free once and for all. And that's, that's the best news ever. I think sometimes we hear that over and over and over again and we forget if we could become numb to that, that how, how amazingly wonderful news that is. Paul is saying to the Colossians and he's saying to us that we no longer need to climb the staircase to be reconciled to God because Jesus has actually done it for us. Today, if you find yourself and you look at this chart and you'd say, you know, there are things I could put on those other steps. Things that I fill those other steps with that I feel like I have to do or I have to know to be right with God. Jesus or Paul would say that you haven't quite yet grasped the supremacy of Jesus. Every religion in the history of the world has some sort of chart or staircase like this that says you have to do these things You have to do these things or know these things to be right with God except for one. You have to climb some sort of staircase except for one, and that's Christianity. In fact, Christianity shouts, shouts that the good news is that Jesus is supreme over everything, 
because of his death on the cross and resurrection, and that because of that, God has actually come from heaven down to earth, and there is no staircase at all anymore. There's no staircase at all, that it looks like this, and that he has made it so that in Jesus, we are reconciled with God. What great news that is. Uh, ben and Olivia, why don't you come on up? We're gonna, I just want to wrap up here real quick. Um, you know, in, in Colossians 1, in this first chapter that we've looked at today, we see here that Paul essentially lays out this uh, clear answer to the most important question that I believe you and I will ever have to answer. That at the end of our lives, when we all stand before God, stand before our maker, most people think the first question that he's going to ask us is, who are you? And I don't mean, who are you? Like, what's your name? I mean, like, who are you? Like, what did you do in this life? Were you a good person? Did you do the good things? And where we would, where most people feel like we have to make a defense for ourselves or have a case. Well, I did this and I gave to this and I helped with this. And, you know, I, I did these things. And I think a lot of people will be surprised that that is not the first question he asks us. I think, I think Jesus isn't going to say, who are you? He's going to say, who am I? Who am I? Who am I to you? Who is Jesus to you? Is he your supreme over everything in your life? Is he your supreme sustainer? and leader, and a reconciler. And however you answer that question, that is the most critical question that you will ever have to answer in your lives. So maybe we should spend some time in this life thinking about that question. Who is Jesus to you? Why don't we stand up? Why don't we stand up? We're going to do, we've got lots of time. We're going to spend uh, time, we're actually going to do two worship songs. But during this first song, I want to invite you to do something maybe a little bit different. And, and, and what I want you to invite you to do during this first song is, in your mind, I want to encourage you to answer this question. Who is Jesus to you? How would you answer that? You know, for some of you, you've thought about this question or question like this before. Well, it's always good to revisit it. It's always good to think about, well, Jesus, this is what you've done in my life. And I want to just thank you for it and recognize you for it you know, lately. But for some of you, this may be the first time you've ever even thought of this question. And so I would ask you to just, just talk to God during this song. Pray with, pray with God during this song and tell him who he is to you. And then after this song, I'm going to come back up and give a little bit more direction uh, uh, for how I think he wants to lead us in the second song and do some ministry time. But, but let's just um, think about that question while we sing this song. I just want to take a minute and just, I don't want to miss an opportunity uh, to just pray for some of you. I think for some of you, I know, you know, this conversation of who is Jesus to you, it's something that you've thought about before. But for some of you, if it's the first time or maybe the first time in a really long time, maybe you've kind of walked away from a relationship with God. Uh, I just want to say a quick prayer and I would invite you, if that's you, to just pray this along with me um, in your mind and in your heart. God, there's so many ways that someone could answer this question, who is Jesus? But to me, 
I don't, I don't totally understand it all. I want to say, I want to say, Jesus, would you be my supreme reconciler? I want to I be free and forgiven of my sins. I want to be right with you. I want to accept just the, the free gift of what you did on the cross for me. And I want to start, or maybe I want to I get back to a relationship with you where I can learn to lean on you um, as my creator, sustainer, leader, all those things. And I just pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, you can, you can open your eyes, but if you prayed that prayer, maybe for the first time or the first time in a long time, would you do, I would ask you to do a couple things. I would, first of all, on the, on the connect card that's in your bulletin, on the register side, there's a little spot that says, check, check the box, I gave my life to Jesus today. Would you check that off, put your name on it, and turn it into the box in the info counter before you leave today? That would just, we'd, I'd love to just reach out to you. The pastors would love to reach out to you just to encourage you because it's a big deal. Because if it really is the most important question you have to answer, like it's a big deal. And we just want to encourage you. Um, but for, we're going to do one more song. And I just, I just want to invite a few people to come up and get prayer. Um, if you were one of those people who, you know, gave your life to Jesus or maybe recommitted your life to Jesus, I would encourage you to come forward and get prayer as well. But if anything just resonated with you in the talk today, like if you're just going through hard things, if something in your life feels like it's falling apart, would why not come up and have somebody pray for you? And, have Jesus meet you in that. Or if you're going through a tough decision or you see a tough decision on the horizon, you want God's wisdom, you want Jesus's leadership over your life, I would encourage you to come forward and get prayer uh, for that as well. As always, if you're sick, we love to pray for the sick. Jesus is also the great healer. Um, We'd love to bless you in that. And then JT, I know you had something to you want to share. Yeah. uh, um, I just had a sense that there were some folks here who... um, I just, I just get a sense that you believe all the right things about Jesus. And it's been all, all the things that in your head, you're like, check all the boxes of, yes, I believe he's this. Yes, I believe he's this. But you would say you've never really had a, an encounter with him. And, and the Lord wants yeah, to come to you in a really personal way and not just let it be something you believe in your head. So if that's you too, I'd love to that's be able to pray for you. Yeah. So why don't you, if any of that stuff applies, um, I would encourage you to come forward and get prayer. And if you're not, if you're not coming up and get prayer, then let's just, let's worship this last song unabandonedly. Because if what we talked about today is true, which I believe it totally is, then Jesus deserves all of our praise and everything we have to give him, right? Right, so let's, let's do one last song together, but let's make sure that everybody comes forward for prayer, uh, gets prayer. If you're up front getting prayer, we just continue to ask God to ask to invite the Holy Spirit to bless you and what he's doing. Uh, but let me just close this out, the rest of us out in prayer. God, we just thank you for the wisdom that Paul gives us in uh, Colossians. This reminder that Jesus is supreme, that he's the supreme image of God, that uh, he's the supreme creator and sustainer and leader and reconciler and all those things. And we thank you, Jesus, that you are more than enough, that you are more than enough to bring us in right relationship with God, that you've wiped and, and taken away the whole staircase, that we, we don't have to climb anything, that we just can accept what you have for us. We don't have to earn it. We just thank you for just all that you do for us and all that you are and help us to grow in relationship with you.
It's in his supreme name that we pray. Amen.